I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. And that is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. This is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. Today we hear a speech from Brian Deese at the June 9th Arena Summit in Detroit. Brian Deese is one of the most influential advisors to President Obama. He was senior advisor to President Obama in the second term, and he was also acting director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, Brian has advised on any number of areas in economic policy in the administration, but most notably, he was probably the foremost expert and advisor to Obama on the Paris Accords and helped negotiate that deal. And in this speech in Detroit, Brian strikes a more optimistic tone than most about our ability as a country and a planet to overcome this climate crisis. So let's jump in. So um, thank you, uh, Ravi, and thank you to the Arena. What an extraordinary organization that's grown up in just a short period of time. Uh, I'm really grateful to be able to participate and contribute to that. I have to start off in saying that uh, I, the first thing that I did in government uh, was work on the restructuring of General Motors and Chrysler. That meant that I was out to Detroit a lot at the end of 2008, at the beginning of 2009. It is not an exaggeration to say that during that period, this was a city that was on its back. It was an auto industry that was on its back, and it was really a country that was on its back. And so it is just so unbelievably energizing to come back to Detroit now and be able to say in no uncertain terms with no spin on the ball, this city is back. This city is thriving, and I am just grateful to be here and be part of it. So thank you for the So I want to talk a little bit about climate change. I'm going to be brief because I mostly want to talk about questions. Uh, I want to engage in a conversation with you all. But what I mostly want to talk to you today about is why I am optimistic about the climate. And so we need to start by saying, wait a minute. You were President Obama's point person on climate change. You did the Paris Agreement and the, the Clean Power Plan, and you are optimistic? So first off, I'm not insane. Uh, and second of all, I'm not naive. And so I will start with the basics. Uh, climate change is a real and accelerating threat. It's a threat to kids in Detroit who are uh, facing increased incidence of asthma. It's a threat to farmers across the industrial Midwest who are facing lower crop yields, and it's a threat to people all across this country, including many that Raina just talked about, and people in Louisiana who are having to literally move their homes today. And I'm not naive that the current administration and President Trump are a clear and present threat to my kids. Uh, the decision to uh, announce withdrawal uh, from the Paris Accord is, in my view, uh, the worst foreign policy decision easily since the decision to evade Iraq, and I think it will have uh, worse and more far-reaching consequences than that. And I think that the, not only the acceptance, but the coddling of climate denial is something that is acceptable. It, neither of those are things that I can explain to my four-year-old, and it's an embarrassment uh, that we have to be uh, engaged in that. So I am not naive. Uh, and as you can tell, I'm a little fired up about this issue. But what I want to talk to you about today is not uh, how pissed off I am, but how optimistic I am, uh, and I, I have three reasons for that. The first basic reason, the economics are on our side. Something happened over the last decade that didn't get a lot of attention, 
Uh, it, it was not the, as, as central as a, a big signing ceremony of a big international agreement, but it was as fundamental. And what has happened is the U.S. economy has, has experienced its first period of sustained economic growth and declining carbon emissions. So over the last eight or nine years, our economy has grown faster than any other major economy in the world, and our carbon emissions have fallen faster than any major economy in the world. That has never happened before in the history of the United States, outside of a period of recession. That means that the central political argument against taking action on climate, which is that we need to trade off economic growth, jobs, benefits for our communities in order to reduce emissions, has just been exploded by a real-time experiment that we've run in this country. And people haven't completely gotten their heads around that. And in fact, I remember we, I, was, I, was in, um, I was in Hawaii uh, with the president, and he was about to do a big New York Times interview on climate. And I told him what I just told you. And he looked at me and he said, are you sure? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm sure. And he said, I want you to go check that. And right as, I, right as he said that, the New York Times uh, 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 journalist walked in and started the interview. And so I didn't have time to go check it. So then in the interview, he said it. And then on the way out, he looked at me and he said, you better have been right. <laughs> but so it's, it's a little hard to get your head around because it has been so fundamental a tenant that everyone has accepted that in order to grow your economy, uh, you had to grow your carbon emissions. That is just no longer the case. And the reason why that's the case is uh, that's no longer the case, is we've seen an extraordinary reduction in the cost of zero carbon sources of energy and ways to reduce uh, energy waste. And the other nice thing about being in government is that you get this constant stream of predictions about where future prices are gonna be, prices for solar, prices for wind, all of these. One thing I can tell you over the last decade, certainly the time that I was in government, we got all of those predictions wrong. That's the bad news. The good news is we were wrong in the same direction every time. Every, every time we've predicted what the cost of solar's been, the market's beat it. Then we predict again, and the market beats it again. That's happened for the last five or six years to the, to the point that the cost of installing, the levelized cost of installing wind and solar in several parts of this country actually beat on a cost-efficient basis installing coal. That has never happened before either. And that means that the economics of this issue are on our side. It's also the reason, by the way, that the US business community has come around and now virtually unanimously supports taking action on climate change. As I said about uh, the Trump administration recently, if you're to the right of Exxon on an issue involving climate change, <laughs> you really do need to have to step back and ask yourself what's going on. Okay, second reason why I'm optimistic. I have been around the world quite a bit over the last couple of years. And the one thing that I can tell you and report optimistically is that the political conversation on climate change that's happening in the United States is not happening anywhere else on this planet. The rest of the world has moved beyond the debate that's happening in the United States. And this is not, that, that, that's, not a, that's not an idle statement. There are lots of countries out there with uh, vigorous parties that are being con uh, controlled by uh, uh, parties of different affiliation. And there are lots of countries where for decades they've had debates about whether uh, because they're poorer countries they should take any obligation addressing climate change. 
But I'm here to report the good news that in countries as, as diverse as the European countries, the UK, even post-Brexit, Germany, but also importantly, China, India, the conversation is just moving on. And, and, and what, what countries around the world have started to think about is not who are we going to blame or how are we going to explain away not taking action and instead, how can we position ourselves to maximally benefit economically from the clean energy transition that we know is coming. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and we could, we could talk a lot about what's happening in India and to what's happening in China and are those dynamics durable over time. But the one thing that I just want to report to all of you, just from having been there, is that this conversation in the United States, when you have it with your international counterparts, they sort of scratch your, their heads. And they say, I guess I understand that politically, but I'll tell you what politically we are thinking. We are thinking that our citizens are increasingly connected to the internet through smartphones and otherwise. They're increasingly able to monitor whether air pollution is actually uh, a threat to their kids' uh, their, their kids' well-being, and they're demanding that we do something about this issue. So we'd rather put ourselves in a position to benefit it economically because we have a political incentive to do it as well. That leaves me optimistic as well. The third reason why I'm optimistic is that Donald Trump has made climate change an issue of action for states and cities in this country. I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time when I was in the White House trying to organize coalitions, uh, uh, coalitions of businesses, coalitions of cities, coalitions of states, and uh, we very much appreciate all the support that we got and the partnership that we got, but I will tell you it was hard, and we, and, and we often slogged, and at best, even around the Paris Agreement, we got about 150 U.S. companies to sign on to something called the American Business Act on Climate Pledge in the run-up to the Paris Agreement. What's happened in the last week since Donald Trump made that speech in the Rose Garden saying that he was going to pull out of the Paris Agreement? Organically, an orga a, 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 a group has come together that's labeled themselves, we're still in, signaling that even if Donald Trump wants to pull the federal government out of the Paris Agreement, there are people across the United States who actually want to be in. To date, as of this afternoon, 14 states, 178 cities, and 1,370 companies have come forward and said, we're still in the Paris Agreement. I just asked, I just asked our arena friends, they're going to circulate the list of those 108 cities. What I would ask you all to do is take a look at those. If you're from a city that's not on that, go home and ask your elected officials that you elected why you're not. If you know somebody who's from a city who's not uh, on that 178, do, do, do the same. And it's not just a political statement. It's important as a political statement because I'll tell you, what, what, what the German press is consuming right now is what Jerry Brown, Andrew Cuomo, Terry McAuliffe, uh, Mark Dayton are doing on this issue. It's important politically, but it's also important substantively because those states and those cities that I just rattled off, they represent more than half of U.S. emissions. So if those states and cities can actually step forward and say, not only politically do we believe that we should have an international climate agreement, but here's our climate plan. Here's how we can stretch and do more to reduce emissions. Then we have the ability to actually communicate to the world that notwithstanding the federal government's position, states and cities together can still put the United States in a leadership position on climate. I never would have thought, uh, 
I never thought that I would have been standing here saying that U.S. mayors could actually be climate diplomats. But that's the, that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And the impact of decisions made at the city level and the state level right now on climate, on climate are more important than ever. That makes me optimistic because at the end of the day, the more local you get on the issue of climate change, the more practical it becomes. You, the, and and this, this takes me to the last point about where do we go now and where do we go forward. And I just I make two final points. The first is anyone who is thinking about getting into the political process, either by running for office or supporting candidates or starting organizations, now's the moment to do it because the multiplier impact at the state and local level is going to be much greater on this issue. And the, 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 the second point uh, that I would make is when you think about climate change, Think about it in the most local and personal level that you can. People care about this issue for different reasons. And that makes sense. That's true of a lot of different issues that we care about. But as progressives in general, we have not done a good enough job at talking about this issue and communicating about this issue in those local and personal terms. When you talk about an issue by saying that you're worried that we have a government that is working with big corporations behind closed doors to rig the rules of the political system to try to spew more pollution in the air, and that means that my kid is more likely to have asthma and end up in the hospital more times during the year, that's personal, that's clear, and that's what's happening in the country right now today. It, it may not be asthma for you. It may be another issue. It may be, uh, it may be uh, safe drinking water. It may be that rising sea levels are, you know, taking, are putting, putting at risk a lot of our military installations across the country. But think about how to make this issue very local because that's the way that, the, that this issue is going to become more central uh, to uh, a, a more central governing issue. The last point that I would make, and again, I think this is a, this is a good forum where we can be open and self-critical about progressives, including... Uh, uh, including administrations that I've supported and worked for. To, for too long, we as progressives have accepted the basic political paradigm around climate change, that this issue is, high, um, is relatively popular. If you poll people, then you ask, uh, 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 do you support putting limits on the amount of pollution that power plants can emit into the air? That issue polls at above 50%. It polls at above 50% in every district across the country, red and blue. What, what for too long we've accepted is that this is a popular issue that has very low salience. Meaning people generally want to do stuff about the environment, but at the end of the day, it's not what motivates them or animates them to vote. Well, what I would say to you all, and I would ask you all today, is to say, that's the world as it is, but let's not accept the world as it is. Because that puts you into an artificial construct that says, if people want to run for office, if people want to make this an issue, they basically have to... Uh, put climate change as one of these side issues that's a nice issue on the sideline. And then they'll do some good things about it once they get into office. And ultimately, that's not going to bring around the change that we need on the timeline that we need when you look at the threats that climate change poses to our country and the world. We need to start talking about this issue at the level of the threat that it actually poses and at the level that people can actually connect to it. So I would urge you to think about, as you leave today, in addition to checking to see whether your city's uh, have, have committed uh, to staying uh, uh, to work on the Paris Agreement, to think about where in your lives do you feel the greatest connection to this issue? And think about whether or not 
you, ha you could sit down in communities that you are in and talk to people about whether they feel the same connection. Figure out what it is that actually helps you connect this issue and then talk to people about that. I think that that's an important uh, missing piece and an opportunity for us going forward. So let me stop there and let's open up for conversation. Hi, I'm David Hamilton uh, from Michigan. Uh, what, let's say Michigan turns blue next year, which it probably is. Um, what can we do on a state level to limit emissions? What like specific laws can we pass that would help with this on a state level? I'm not sure like what federal can do versus state or any of that. Sure. Well, here's the thing that's really exciting about this issue, which is a lot of the actual regulatory action uh, on, uh, on issues that affect the uh, environment and climate change actually happen at the state level. So let me give you one example. There's been a lot of talk about the Clean Power Plan, uh, the Obama's putting in place the Clean Power Plan and then Trump strapping, scrapping the Clean Power Plan. The Clean Power Plan used the authority under the Clean Air Act, the federal authority under the Clean Air Act, to set standards for each state in terms of reducing pollution. But what the Clean Power Plan did was essentially do nothing more than that. It said, here's a target for every individual state, and then every individual state, you come up with your own plan. You could do that any way that you want, and there's a whole different menu, and states have uh, gone at it very different ways. So we are unlikely to have that federal requirement in place over the next three and a half years. Though I, I will say, as an aside, that will be caught up in litigation, and the Trump administration is going to have a lot harder time than it thinks actually getting that uh, undone in a legal way. But even putting that aside, yeah. But putting that aside, every state has a target out there. So Michigan has a target under the Clean Power Plan. And you know what it turns out? Michigan could put forward a plan to hit that target or exceed that target under the Clean Power Plan that would actually create jobs, bring more innovative clean energy companies into the Detroit area, and take advantage of the fact that you have a lot of assets as a state that actually would make you more competitive as a clean energy economy if companies knew that they were investing into a reliable framework over the long term. So Michigan still has that card in its deck, just like lots of other, uh, lots of other states. Those 14 states, by the way, some of whom have Republican governors, those 14 states are saying, we're gonna, still, uh, we're gonna meet or exceed those plans, and we're gonna do that not because we are prioritizing environmental issues over growth. We're gonna do that because we think that if we do this, we will attract more of those businesses and more of those jobs into Minnesota or into Virginia or into California than into states that say, nah, we'll figure it out later. And so that's just, that's just with respect to the power sector. The same is true as transportation. The same is true in efficiency and building standards. You talk to most uh, people who run big businesses today and they say, look, we're upgrading the efficiency of our factories, of our facilities, uh, not because we're green, but because you can make a lot of money. Uh, it, energy is a big cost driver in a lot of companies. And so there's an enormous economic opportunity there. And states can set standards that help drive that progress. Hello. Um, so one of the frustrations when working with well, Kevin Waskellis, sorry, I'm from Detroit. Um, yeah. So one of, the, one of the, the common problems or issues when working with politicians and policymakers is that there's this feeling, and 
in many cases, actuality, that they're very driven by, um, they're very reactive. And it's always kind of seen like jumping from one crisis to another. I mean, can you give an example of like of an issue that, that the federal government or the federal has really taken on at a major level um, that wasn't at a crisis point, a clear and open crisis? I mean, well, I guess um, I guess I would I would answer that uh, I would answer that question in two ways. If what you're if what if what you're saying is that. We have a political system right now that is really quite bad at addressing issues before they become crises. Then I will, you know, si sign me up as a, as wholeheartedly, you know, on that score. Uh, and as someone who lived through the government shutdown and debt limit uh, drama and you know getting the nation close to default, uh, we're engaged in a lot of reckless and irresponsible uh, activity because our government uh, is not functioning the way that it should. On the other hand, uh, that's the federal government. If you look at state governments and cities, you see all across the country people putting in place policies that are designed to, at saying, where do we need to be five or 10 years from now? Because we want to play offense and, and put in place a proactive plan. So I think that the, the farther away that you get from the federal government, the more opportunity there is uh, for that. And I think that's very true with respect to climate change, clean energy, climate resilience plans uh, to try to avoid the worst impacts uh, of climate locally. But I guess the, the, so I'd say that. But the last thing that I will say about the dysfunction uh, in our federal government, which is of course there, and of course makes things hard to address until they're crises, is, you know, I also think that uh, it is also incumbent on all of us and on people in this room to look at that and say, that's really frustrating, but we also have to be part of figuring out how to fix that. And I think whether the issue is climate change or anything else, you know, I, 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 served, in the, I served in the White House for eight years, and so I saw the frustration associated with that dysfunction. But I also saw enormous ways in which the federal government and the executive branch and working together with the legislative branch took steps that have made the lives uh, of Americans across the uh, country you know, unspeakably better. And so, you know, when, 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 when you say, you know, have we, have we, can we do anything at all in this country if we're not facing a crisis point? Well, you know, I was there the day that the president uh, signed the Affordable Care Act into law. And our country had been facing a crisis of health care for years before that. And uh, so you could argue that that's an example where, uh, you know, that came 50 or 100 years too late. But you know, on the other hand, uh, I'm really glad it came when it did, and it didn't come a decade from now. And over the next six or eight weeks, we're going to find out whether, as a country, uh, we decide to roll back a lot of that progress uh, and throw our healthcare system into a lot more uncertainty or not. So I think that you know, it is true that there's dysfunction, but there's also opportunity, and I think we all have to. It's incumbent on all of us to figure out how we break through that. Great. Um, I see a bunch of hands over there. We got one more over here, and I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i make my way over to some of you. Obviously, it'll be hard to get all of you. <laughs> Hello. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Very informative. My name is David Sanchez out of Detroit. Um, thank you. Actually, out of southwest Detroit, and I know you mentioned that in your presentation. Um, uh, the area we're from, uh, well, 48217, my neighbor, it's the highest asthma rate in the country. But it's also one of the most impoverished rates in the country, too. 
so it's I, I it's I'd have a hard time trying to ask that zip code or the residents there to choose between breathing in those carbon emissions and trying to pay their utility bill, right? So can you speak a little bit to um, the cost of the consumer with this green energy? And uh, I know you said the price came down, but can you speak a little bit to about where that's at currently? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're raising two important points. The first is that uh, this is true of carbon emissions and it's true of every other, uh, uh, every other issue of environmental pollution uh, in this country which is the people that are the most affected and the people at the most risk are the people with the least money uh, and the least power uh, in our economy. And uh, so when we, as we think about policy measures to try to address these issues, we can't avoid the fact that there is, uh, a, there, there is inequality that is baked into the way in which we pollute and the way in which we consume energy in this country. The second thing you said is, how do we avoid a situation in which people have to pay more for cleaner sources of energy? Because if you have to choose between putting food on the table uh, and cleaner air, that's, a, just an, that's an impossible choice to put in front of a parent. And, and this, I just, want, I, I just cannot stress this long, uh, 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 hard enough. Anyone in America today that tells you that that is a choice and that you have to choose is selling you a false narrative that right now in the United States, if you look at the Clean Power Plan, objectively, there are facts, and those facts do matter. Objectively, the Clean Power Plan would save consumers money, about $100 a year in their pocket. And the reason is because clean, both because cleaner sources of energy are getting cheaper faster, and they're going to continue to get cheaper faster than dirty sources of energy. And the other reason is because if you are more efficient and you consume less energy, you're spending less money. So if you can, be, if you can use cleaner energy and you can use less of it without having to sacrifice lifestyle or otherwise, you're going to put more money in your pocket. So the idea that you know, it would be great if we could have both these things, but nobody has figured out a way to do that yet, that is, I don't know whether we're on tape, but I don't work for the government anymore. That's just total bullshit. Total bullshit. And, 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 I, and, and, and what is true is that there are some communities across the country whose economic livelihood has depended for years or decades on production of fossil fuels. And for those communities, this transition is a hard one just in the same way that agricultural communities have faced difficult transitions as our economy has changed. And we should be totally committed as a country to a just transition for those folks and actually looking out for the pensions and the health care of people who spent their, uh, spent their lives working uh, in, in mines and some of the worst and most dangerous jobs in this country. But we should not accept the idea that says, well, maybe climate change is real, and maybe I would prefer to reduce asthma rates in poor and impoverished communities, but I just can't figure out a way to do it that doesn't drive up those electricity bills. If somebody says that to you, I would look to see where their funding is coming from. Hey, Brian, I uh, grew up in Toledo. I live in California now. And my question is, especially with state legislatures and you know, the local level that you're talking about, who are the opponents to this? And just kind of give us an understanding of if you're running for office, you don't have as much money and resources to fight these places. Um, and the fact that the United States still has this discussion and you're saying other countries don't have it at all, who are we up against and uh, what are they? Sure. 
So, you know, I mentioned, uh, uh, I mentioned Exxon, and it's, it is striking and worth pausing uh, for a moment that if you look at the, you, the business community uh, with really just one exception, which I'll get to in a second, you can't name a CEO in America today that was speaking out against the United States participating in the Paris Agreement. So the Trump administration made a decidedly anti-business decision uh, when uh, they made their announcement a couple weeks ago. So in rhetoric and in public posture, uh, US, the US business community really is for this. Now, where it gets more, more complicated is when you, you know, start to peel back and look at their uh, actions and activities. But I think a lot of the, op and some companies are you know, really uh, not so great on that front when you compare their rhetoric to their uh, actions. But a lot, of the, a lot of the money and a lot of the political opposition is being driven by a relatively small number of people, uh, a minority of people, uh, a minority of companies in the coal uh, industry, led principally by Bob Murray of Murray Energy. He's the one CEO that you could probably uh, find uh, where um, very unsuccessful CEO. Uh, and then the money that's coming from, uh, you know, the Koch brothers and a few other uh, others that have been very strategic about uh, the funding of candidates and funding of research, uh, and you see that across the landscape. And so it's a little difficult because the, the, the opposition pops up here, there, and everywhere, and you sort of wonder where it's all coming from, but it's, it's relatively isolated. Uh, but I think that it's also, you know, quite uh, significant. The one thing I would say on this front, though, which is, is to, you know, to take a little heart, is that what happened in the last election, at least, we don't want to overlearn the, the lessons uh, of, uh, of the last election when it comes to climate change, which is that uh, if you look at you know, polling and data, this, that, that election at the federal level and, and at, the, uh, well, at the presidential level and at the Senate and House level, that election was not about climate change. The issues that people were voting on and that, that divided people were, were not climate. Part of what my argument is that that's a, that's a problem because I want climate to become more salient because I think that if it is, then we can win that argument. Other people are on the other side of that. It was interesting to see in the response to the Paris Agreement, there was political chatter with people on the progressive saying, side saying, this is gonna become a political issue. And then some, uh, some people uh, who are, are opposed saying that would be great. Well, I would welcome that. It, we may turn out that we're, it may turn out that that's wrong, but I'd certainly rather have this be a high salience issue than have it be an issue that people, uh, people are ignoring. Hi, my name is Haley Mowdy. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Um, you kind of touched on my question a little bit earlier when you mentioned like coal workers and other um, workers who get their, make their living in dirty energy fields. So I currently live in Texas, but I was born and raised in Oklahoma and not unlike West Virginia, it's a state whose you know, sole economic um, interest pretty much is oil and natural gas. And um, while I buy the the macro argument that um, it, it's economically feasible and beneficial to invest in these um, green energy initiatives. Um, so many of my family members, friends, and community members make their livelihood in the oil, oil and natural gas industries. And while many of those people are, um, you know, awake to the realities of climate change, um, I'm having trouble convincing them of the necessity of buying into um, clean energy initiatives, particularly because it 
hurts their you know, bread and butter. What kinds of arguments do you think they would find persuasive to help me convince people who are working in these industries to support something that on the face might look like um, counterintuitive? Sure. Good, uh, good evening, Brian. Uh, thanks for coming out today. Uh, my question is like, I have three really simple ones. Uh, my name is Kyle Manley, I'm a Flint native, and because of the uh, current climate of the current administration, um, what are some materials that you can uh, recommend to some people who want to get more involved in this? Uh, what are some actionable steps that people can take to start right now for who are get, just getting involved? And then are you contactable for people who are really, really interested in actually beginning this work? All right, um, uh, both really good, uh, important questions. So uh, for, for, first one on this. The first I would say is that um, it's, it is, it's, it's worth, wherever you live, whatever, wherever, whatever community uh, you are in, uh, it's worth getting smart and getting educated on what the economic drivers are uh, uh, in the communities that you live because uh, Let's take Texas in your, you know, uh, right next door. Texas is fast becoming the wind capital of America. 20% of Texas energy comes from wind today. On uh, windy days, as much as 50% of uh, the energy in Texas comes from wind. And in fact, recently you've seen some Texas politicians actually step out, federal politicians step out and, and say, whoa, you know, Let's not, let's not go overboard on that rhetoric, that anti-wind rhetoric, right? And uh, that's happening in Oklahoma, too. And Oklahoma is a state that is really well-positioned for wind. And so, you know, uh, the first thing I would say is every economic opportunity, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have a partisan or political lens on economic opportunity. And we should be interested in every economic opportunity. So the, the, the folks who work at the natural, in, in natural gas, we shouldn't look at them as less important, but we also shouldn't look at them as more important. And one of the big things that I think was really unfortunate about the last political cycle is there, the lionization of the coal worker uh, to the complete ignorance of the fact that there are more than three million people, more than 10 times as many people who work uh, in the coal industry, who work in these clean energy fields, whose jobs and whose livelihoods are put at risk when we take anti-climate policies. So that, that, I think, is number one. And then I think the second thing is that for a lot of those folks that, that, that uh, work in those industries, there are, we are going to, this, this transition is going to be a transition. And so, you know, natural gas is cleaner than coal. If you look at the clean power plan that Obama put in place, a lot of the ways that states are going to meet, would meet and comply with that, is by shifting from coal to natural gas. That is a transition that will occur over time, and over time we're going to have to move off of uh, natural gas entirely. But I think that, so I think that that's also, that's also important too, that it's a transition. And then the third point is that, you know, I found that everybody who lives in a community Certainly, and it's certainly true of parents, everybody wants clean air and clean water for their kids. And so we should be able to sit down and find ways to achieve that goal without putting 
people's economic livelihoods at risk, and, in, and where there are going to be transitions in the economy, doing right by those people. And the truth is, we have those policies. It goes back to the point that I was making before. This is not an issue of unsolvable policy. I worked on some issues in the White House that were really just unsolvable policy issues, right? Like, it's really hard to figure out how to put somebody on Mars. They'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> but that's an issue of, like, where, you know, it's not an issue of political will. It's, like, it's just really complicated and hard to figure out. This one, we know the answers. And if you can, if you can engage people in a way that says, Let's just, like, can we just talk about the answers, put the rhetoric aside. What about this? What about this? I think you find that you can break people down and that, that, that really the things we're talking about could be opportunities. Uh, could be opportunities to you know, maintain the livelihood they have while creating opportunities in new fields as well. Okay, on the next question, I'm just going to do a, a, another plug. I think that the first thing to do is to uh, check in with this group called We're Still In because it is not, it is just a platform. It's a platform for organizing for states, cities, companies, and citizens. There's an accompanying petition that's called I'm Still In, which is asking for individuals to raise their own voices and add their own voices. So that's a place where you can immediately check in. You can get into a community, uh, both you know, social and digital, uh, of people that are talking about the ways that they are trying to move that forward in their own communities. So, uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's one thing that I would recommend. The second thing that I would recommend if you're looking for reading to get, you know, to get up on things is that uh, the, the current administration took down almost all of the material that was on the fe federal government websites about uh, climate change, but luckily people have archived that and put that up on the internet. There's a lot of really good information, explainers on what, what is the clean power plan, what is climate change, how is it affecting your communities, um, how can your community become more climate resilient. That stuff's all still out there, so I'd encourage you to uh, do that. And on the last thing, absolutely. I, I won't actually read my email address out uh, in front of this uh, whole crowd, but I will tell you, feel free, uh, you know, after this and also in general, uh, be in touch. And, uh, and the, I guess the last thing that I will say is, uh, uh, be in touch and be engaged uh, on this issue and every other issue. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your commitment. Uh, and let's get to work.